prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, and it's a guiding prayer for our sermon this morning. Help us not to seek to be consoled as much to console. Help us not seek to be loved as much as to love. Um, as we think about what matters most and how the things we do matter, let that be the prayer that echoes in all of our mind as we finish up our series this morning, as we celebrated what God has been doing and how we celebrate God and what our families are doing and how we love our families. This morning, we are going to conclude this series before we move into Lent next week with the idea of how the things we do in life matter and what does it mean for those things to matter and how do they matter. So we're gonna be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 3, starting at verse 9. It'll be here on the screen behind me. It'll be in your bulletin. You can pull out your Bible or your app, however you want. We can go into the Word together this morning. So let's hear from the Word of the Lord. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future in their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there's nothing better for them to, to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this. So that all should stand in awe before him, that which already has been, that which is to be, already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our, domer, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amen. I've been twisting my words all morning, y'all. I don't know what's going on. I got like dry mouth. I've just been, also, as everybody knows, I talk too fast. And so that's a clear indication I need to slow down if my words aren't coming out right. I'll try my best. I'll stick close to my notes. I won't try to get too crazy and extemporaneous up here. Have you ever read um, T.S. Eliot's Hollow Men, The Hollow Men, The Poem, or seen the play Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller? Or did you ever read Moby Dick by Herman Melville in high school? Moby Dick is a story about Ishmael and his reaccounting of Captain Ahab's obsession to kill a white whale that was huge and destructive. And if you haven't read it yet, you probably will have to in high school. So here's a cliff notes, okay? This is gonna help you, all right? Just take, you've never taken notes in your sermons, but take notes right now, it's gonna help, all right? So in the story, the whale is eating part of Captain Ahab's leg and he's determined to have his revenge. And this whale is kind of the personification of evil in this chaotic sea and the sea is chaos and and after various encounters with the whale, multiple boats are destroyed and crewmen are killed and all these mishaps and setbacks should, you know, call off this quest of Ahab's, but he will not relent. Eventually, though, Ahab himself gets tied up with the ropes from his own ship and the large mammal drags him down to the sea. And there's this kind of we're kind of left with, well, it's not the resolution we were expecting type thing. Now, Death of a Salesman is about Willie Loman's reimagining of a past, of his own past, and his complicated relationship with his family. He kind of makes up life. He remembers things that weren't really there, or his memories of certain things aren't as they should be. 
particularly with his son Biff. The play is written in a way that one can't help but call to question the concept of the American dream and the idea of success and those things that truly make us happy. And T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Man, it's a piece about the liminality of life, the in-betweenness of life, how we're not where we are supposed to be, yet we're not where we're going. We're not who we are or we're not who we used to be, but we're not who we are yet going to be. The liminality, the space between, is filled with illusions from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And it, it starts like this. The poem starts like this. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. Leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless. As wind is in dried grass, or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. So you're probably thinking, man, super uplifting way to start Joe Kane Day Sunday. <laughs> you're probably thinking, why am I mentioning these three very different literary pieces that all have a sense of like gloom and melancholy? I think it's because their overarching tones, their sound of the, the meaning beneath the text really echo Ecclesiastes and the book of Ecclesiastes. My brother-in-law reminded me yesterday when he asked me, what are you preaching from? I said, Ecclesiastes. He goes, oh. He says, isn't that like the hardest thing to preach from? I'm like, yeah, it's like Joe Kane Sunday, so everybody's gonna be there, it's gonna love me no matter what I say. <laughs> it's because these echoes throughout those three books we see in Ecclesiastes that draws me to this idea of, of really thinking through the themes and leanings of this Old Testament text more than just this one specific pericope, the small group of texts we read this morning. Um, the whole book has this kind of tone to it. It's only 12 chapters. It's not very long. But it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, mostly just because of its uniqueness amongst the canon. It is unlike any other book in the Bible. The book's author, who we often refer to as Kohelet, who is the teacher, self-referred to as the teacher, Kohelet, he, uh, he reminds us of our, our own identity at different times in life. Maybe sometimes we're feeling like Koheleth. Maybe all the time we're feeling like Koheleth. There's probably one point in our life we can identify with this book. And that's one of the things that attracts me to it. Um, there, there have been plenty of times throughout the history of the Bible that influential people have tried to get rid of Ecclesiastes. There's a number of people who didn't want it in the Bible. Kind of like how Martin Luther didn't want James to be in the Bible. There's been plenty of people who didn't want Ecclesiastes to be part of the canon. But I, like Sibley Towner, whose commentary I really relied heavily on for this sermon, um, said we should allow Ecclesiastes to stand on its own merit despite its differences with the rest of the book. The Holy Spirit guided people to bring this book into our canon, and so we need to approach it as such. We need to have, find the truth that God has for us in it. And so, as I stated, there's a theme, there's a couple themes in those other books that really relate to Ecclesiastes and those other works, but none more so than this. Life is absurd. Literally, that's, literally, that's how he starts this book. The book starts, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the word vanity in Hebrew is hebel, H-E-B-E-L, hebel. And it has got so many different English translations that it's, one of the, it's almost impossible to nail down one that everybody agrees upon. The NRSV, the RSV, KJV, the JB versions of the Bible, they all say vanity of vanities. But the Moffat translation says utterly vain, utterly vain. The NEB says emptiness, emptiness. REB says futility, utter futility. 
The GNB says it's useless, useless. Another translation, utterly futile. Nothing is worthwhile. Utterly absurd. And then if you want to get in a very technical translation, it could be a vapor, vapor of vapors. But most of us read from the NIV more often than not, and it says meaningless, meaningless. It's weird to have so many different words for this one verse in the Bible. This is the difficulty in exegesis, in studying the Bible and in interpreting it together. A translation can change one word, even just so slightly, that it can change the meaning of how we interpret the text. But suffice it to say, for this morning, we're going to kind of land on the whole idea that life is just absurd. Life is utterly absurd. This is true for Herman Melville in the way that he continues to show that Ahab has no reason to continue his request for revenge. No one is making him do this. It's not for something else other than his own pride that he puts his own life and others in jeopardy. What started out as a mission to rid the world of this personified evil became evil itself and in so doing became utterly absurd. It's a testament to how easily we can trick ourselves into thinking the things that we are doing are we are doing on behalf of righteousness when, in fact, there's truly no meaning beyond our own absurdity, our own unrelenting. Miller's character, Willie, has convinced himself of a reality that is far from the truth. It is not even remotely true. Treating life as he so chooses and in so doing, he creates a life for himself that is utterly absurd. And T.S. Eliot's hollow men are trapped between meaning Experiencing some form of life that has no imperative, that has nothing that matters, trapped in the liminal space of absurdity. And that's really this whole idea of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. For Kohelet, it's, it's a vital for a person to realize this fact before they can realize anything else. Vanity of vanities. Life is absurd. There's no meaning to life. You were born to live, and in your life you will toil, and then you will die. And Kohelet's theology and outlook and life fly in the face of everything else in the Old Testament. Like the whole rest of the Old Testament believes in this idea of distributive justice, where if you, do, if you follow God's laws, you, God will reward you. But if you don't, you'll be punished. And every other ver- kind of book in the Bible holds this idea of distributive justice. The whole reason the Israelites get exiled, the whole reason they're ever in trouble is because they broke God's law. And in their minds, God is punishing them. And Kohelet's like, I don't believe that. <laughs> He's the only person like, in the whole Old Testament that's like, That doesn't really make any sense. In chapter seven, he said, there are righteous people who die in their righteousness and there are wicked people who die, who live in their evil doing. He, like us today, but unlike the rest of the Old Testament, is able to say life is not fair sometimes. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Vanity of vanity, life is absurd. Also, the teacher, Koheleth, was not only concerned with Israelites' future and their well-being, but all humanity which is also different from a lot of the Old Testament. His 12-chapter book has the word all appear in 49% of the verses. He wants to make sure he's not talking about just his own downtrodden people group, but that all of life is absurd. Not just Israelites, but all of life. He's also concerned with reminding us that all of life is vain and that life is filled with toil. The word toil appears 55 times in 12 chapters. And it's referring to the work we do as humans. Our day-to-day lives, our jobs, our efforts, our nine-to-five. He's basically saying, meaningless, doesn't matter. You know, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. All that has been will be. All that has been before will come again. For Koheleth, toil is the fate of all people, and he considers it hebel. Absurd. However, just when we think Koheleth cannot be any more overwhelmingly depressing 
or pessimistic, he gets a little bit worse. <laughs> we think he's going to suggest that there's one bit of hope. There's one thing that can add to meeting when he starts talking about wisdom. Like, oh, wisdom, that's something good, you know? And, that is, and, and, and he has this weird relationship with the word wisdom and the idea of wisdom. He does think, you know, wisdom helps us discover truth. Wisdom is passed through wise instruction. It is a precious asset because it is the avenue for understanding life. Wisdom is actually important to Kohelet. And just when you think, oh, there's a light at the end of his, you know, pessimistic tunnel, he says this. I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness from folly. And I perceived that this is also but chasing after wind, which is another way of saying hebel. He, he goes on to say, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase in knowledge increase in sorrow. Like, no, you almost gave us hope. You almost made us feel good about something. Don't you, can't you have anything nice to say, man? Like, we, you almost had one glimmer of optimism in this pit of despair you've been bringing us in, in, this, in your book. But I will say, Kohelet does seem to go back and forth by the whole idea of wisdom. He sees wisdom as very important and something we should seek to acquire and give away. But also, um, the truth about the reality of life is only for God to know. And we are not God, so we cannot truly know that. So there's no level of wisdom that we can fully acquire to know the understanding and meaning of life because we're not God. So wisdom is kind of like chasing after wind too because no matter how much you seek it, you'll never really get it. <laughs> so you're like, come on, man. There is one thing, though, for Kohelet that is worthwhile. One thing. There's one thing that will make anything we do have at least some significance. And it takes wisdom to understand this. This is why he says wisdom is worthwhile. It helps us realize this fact from verse 12 we just read today. And that is to take pleasure in our toil. Verse 12 said, I know that there's nothing better for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that they should eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil. And at the end of the day, this is where old Kohelet lands. We're all born into a world where we will have to toil and we will die. But while we are here, we should at least enjoy the lives that we have, that we should find happiness in what we do. There's nothing better than to take pleasure in our toil. Towner suggests, the, the commentary that I was reading, suggests that the Ecclesiastes is not a book as much about God as it a book about human ideas in our own humanity. It's ideas about a human survival in a world which work is pain, overwork is foolishness, pleasure soon pales in the face of death, and wisdom is unable to comprehend even the simplest sequences that would make real understanding of the world possible. However, the goal of human endeavors needs to be joy because it is a divine imperative. Isn't that kind of weird? We're reading this book about the Bible, how it says, like this is literally in the Bible. It says, all of life doesn't matter. It's meaningless. It's not gonna matter. What you do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But at least be happy. At least find some level of happiness. Deep within human nature is an, is an eradicable desire for happiness planted there by God. Now, this imperative does not mean we just go crazy and act as if there are no limits to what we should do or not do. It doesn't mean we live like we're in our fraternity all year long, all our lives long, and just go you know, wild with our lives. Chapter 11 says, let your heart be full of cheer, but follow the inclination of your heart and the desire of your eyes and know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So there's still 
you know, consequences for our actions and our behavior. There's still this understanding of living within the, under, the, the lives God's called us to live. So does this just mean law and order? We don't care about that. It doesn't mean we can just go, you know, do crazy things. We still need to remember what God has taught us, but find happiness in the short amount of time you have here on this earth. So why preach from this today? Why bring Ecclesiastes into the sermon at all? The sermon is titled, What We Do Matters, and Ecclesiastes basically says it doesn't. And truthfully, I had a really hard time deciding which direction to take this sermon because there was two distinct ways I was thinking about going. And one was that everything we do can have meaning and everything we do can matter because when you juxtapose Ecclesiastes up against some of our texts from the New Testament, um, they come into conflict. And we are Christians, so we read the Bible through the Christ lens. And Christ reminds us that there, when we do things for others, there's meaning and matter in what we do. Last semester, last semester, last fall, Robbins preached a sermon about the mustard seed. And he reminded us that even in our smallest details of work, there can be meaning because God can use it to do incredible things. As Vanessa was sharing with us earlier, all of life can, can have sacredness to it, can matter and have meaning. When we come to Ecclesiastes, we're like, well, he didn't really say that. And, and, and it's tough to you know, reconcile these two. However, as Christians, we read through this Christ-centered lens. And so we, we kind of come up against Ecclesiastes in that sense. But it does not mean we should disregard this book entirely. And I really wanted to take this sermon in that approach because it would match up with what Vanessa was going to say or I assumed what she was going to say. She didn't give me her script or anything. I just, I, I could, knowing her, I knew it. She, but that video about strangers, about how we things matter. Like I knew the direction I could take this sermon, but Ecclesiastes just didn't say it. And so I had to think, how as Christians do we reconcile this craziness from Kohelet with the good news in the New Testament that what we do has meaning and can matter. And it was this for me. We're all going to die one day. We are all going to toil. But God has given us one life to live. Let us not be miserable in it. I've heard from so many people lately about how they're just waiting to get to the next thing that will bring them happiness. What if that next thing never comes? How they've been working a job that they don't like for 20 years, just waking up every day in misery. We don't get do-overs. Like, we don't believe in reincarnation, friends. And so if you don't like the life you are living, you're not gonna get another chance at it. And so I'm not here to say, hey, just make yourself happy. I mean, I know it's not that easy. I'm not saying that, you know, if you make some conscious decision right now, everything's gonna be perfect, rainbows and butterflies. But what are the habits in our life what are the decisions we're making? What are the situations that we are in that are making us miserable? And is there a way to change that? Is there a way that we can say, you know what, Ecclesiastes was right. We only have but a breath of life, only a moment to live. And so what we do can matter for us too. You know, we, we always try to shy away from selfishness. I'm not encouraging you to be selfish but I do think God wants us to be happy. Some people say, well, God doesn't care about our happiness. Um, Kohelet would disagree. Ecclesiastes says it's a divine imperative to be happy. And so what are those things in our life that make us not want to get out of bed in the morning? Have you ever had a day like that where you're just like, I do not want to go to work. I do not want to go do this. I don't know. And I'm not saying that we can change those things tomorrow, but can we begin asking the questions, how can I find the, the fullness that God has for me? 
Maybe you're not working a nine to five job, like what is the quote unquote typical job. You can think, well, well how do I find happiness in, in the rest of my life? Or maybe you are, and you're like, how do I find happiness in my job? How do I find happiness outside of that? I don't think God wants, to live us, wants us to live in a life that we're afraid to live into or that we don't wanna be in. And I don't know exactly what that fix is for you. I don't know exactly what that means for you. It's different for all of us. For some of us, it's, it's even deeper than just our jobs. Some of us need to seek help. And, and you know, sometimes we hesitate saying this from you know, a pulpit, but, but life can get really difficult sometimes. And sometimes we think we have to journey, journey on it on our, on our own or alone, but we don't. There are people who want to journey with you. And as a pastor, I would love to help you find that resource. And I would love to be there with you through that. If you're like, my life is just so miserable that I can't find any happiness, I can't even imagine that. Let me tell you, I think God wants more for your life than that. I just believe that. And that what you do does matter. And that you don't have to live in this life that you're afraid to wake up in the morning and that you don't wanna get out of bed because God wants us to enjoy the lives we have while we're here. And so we hold these two things together. That through Christ we find meaning in our everyday day-to-day. That we can go to work and know that God can be in all things. And that what we do can matter when we do them for other people. And then when we help others. And we also remember too that what we do can matter for our own lives because God does not want us to live in a life of misery. God wants us to find happiness and to find joy and to love this precious time we have on this earth. Because as we've all experienced at different times in our lives, it can be gone in a moment. We've all lost loved ones. We've all seen friends fall on really difficult times. So while we have the capacity to act of our own volition, let us seek after those things that God wants for our lives. And let us remember that what you do matters. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have called us into this life and that you are helping us live fully into your kingdom. We thank you that you are giving us an opportunity to be a part of a life that matters for others and for ourselves. We love you, Lord, and we give you thanks and praise today. And we also remember that we have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law and we have rebelled against your love. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.